This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. On Tuesday this week came the news that the ABC's Bill Bertels and the Australian Financial Review's Mike Smith were forced to flee China. As the pair touched down in Australia to start a two-week quarantine, they didn't even escape that, Australians were coming to terms with our rapidly deteriorating relationship with China and what that could mean for our media and for our economy. The pair left China after advice from Australian diplomatic staff in Beijing and Shanghai that it wasn't safe to stay after China placed exit bans on both. These exit bans were imposed because the Chinese wanted to interview both reporters on a matter of national security. That matter of national security turns out to have been the earlier detention of the Australian television journalist Chung Li, who's now been charged. Since Bertels and Smith have returned to Sydney, the story has become murkier, or perhaps clearer, depending on the way you see it, with reports confirmed that ASIO had raided the homes of two Chinese journalists who fled Australia, along with visiting scholars who've been denied re-entry to Australia. It's cloak and dagger Cold War stuff, and journalists seem to be stuck in the middle, as are you, because right now there are no Australian journalists working for Australian media reporting out of China. Indeed, China has forced some 17 foreign journalists to leave Beijing in recent times. So where to now? Well, I'm joined by Hugh Rimmington, the National Affairs Editor for 10 News First. Hugh has also worked at CNN in Hong Kong, from where he reported on Asia, including China. He's also, of course, a Walkley Award winner. And Chris Ullman is the political editor for Nine News. He has over three decades of experience, including at the Canberra Times and, of course, the ABC. In 2017, he became the political editor for Nine News. So, uh, Hugh and Chris, thank you both very, very much for joining us this week on Fourth Estate. I might start with you, Hugh, because you've worked in Hong Kong and reported from there on China. Do you think that China is right now a safe place for Australian journalists to be working? 
Uh, no, I don't think it is. I think the uh, government advice for any Australian is not to travel to, to China at the moment. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons for that is arbitrary detention. So I think that it's not a situation where the Chinese to, as you arrive there, just bundle you away. For one thing, if you want to work as a journalist in China, you've got to have uh, visas for it. So they will know that you're coming. You're either resident there or you've uh, successfully got a journalist visa to go there. And, um, you know, they've taken a good look at anyone who wants to go in there to work as a journalist, uh, even if it's just for a short term period. So mm -hmm. they wouldn't presumably do that unless there was some particular circumstances in which they were keen to entice you there simply to arrest you. Um, so, look, I, I think you could go there probably for a short visit and uh, potentially, you know, I, I would think probably on the balance of probabilities come away OK. But not just in China, but actually in Hong Kong now. Uh, the yes, I was about to ask Germany. you about that as well. What about Hong Kong? Do you think it's safe for, for, for working journalists at the moment, particularly from Australia? Well, on paper, it's not. And the reason for that is, I mean, there are plenty of journalists working there, but the new uh, Hong Kong security laws that have come in mm. make plain that there are conditions by which if a Chinese person acts in any way, that is to say a Hong Kong Chinese person or anyone resident in Hong Kong, acts with a, a foreign agent or someone from some operating with some other foreign interest, mm. arrives in Hong Kong, and does something which offends the authorities there, then not only might you be putting yourself in danger because you might be perceived as that foreign agent, but you could put in danger anyone that you put, you know, who you're working with in Hong Kong. Mm. Now, the difficulty here is that no one knows what are the limits. Uh, but we see, for example, that Chung Lei, who presumably had a pretty good idea about how life was in Beijing, um, strayed across some limits and has subsequently been detained. So this is, it's the very vagueness of it. The law gives enormous powers uh, for detention of Australians, both in mainland China and now in Hong Kong. So it just it, becomes that gamble about, are you going to, you know, be found to have interfered with the law? Yes, indeed. And it is that vagueness now that, that a lot of reporters who are still in Beijing refer to, and I'm talking here about Anna Fifield, who, who was the Beijing bureau chief for the Washington Post, and she talked quite eloquently yesterday morning on ABC radio about the, the, the constant uh, danger or perceived danger of working in Beijing at the moment. She said it's been going on for many, many years. Do you think, and she's Australian, by the way, although she's, she is currently there on a New Zealand passport. Do you think people, Hugh, like um, Anna, are safe working in Beijing at the moment? I think just for anyone working in Beijing. And because the, the difficulty with it here is that ever since 2017, when Xi Jinping basically said that all speech must extol our party, our country, our people and our heroes, there has been a kind of a floating notice that has been put out there uh, that the idea of free speech, reporting speech, reporting critical speech is essentially a breach of how Xi Jinping believes China should operate. So Western journalists in there have been harassed in various forms. Uh, this is not new, but in the past, it's not been really worth anyone's while to go and hassle them too much. Mm. But I think we're close to the point at which um, they would be increasingly happy to see 
foreign journalists leave unless they're completely compliant foreign journalists. So if you're doing your job as a journalist in China at the moment, I would say that uh, the dangers get larger. So, Chris Alban, can I bring you in here? Do you agree with that assessment or do you think there's something more going on here in relation to Bill Bertels and and Mark Smith, who've essentially been sent packing? It it was seen from the outside as a clear message to Australia and to our media that we're not welcome anymore. How do you read it? Well, I think that the Hughes summed up neatly the change that's happened in China. I think we, we can't get away from that. Every sinew of the state is now bent on supporting the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party is bent on supporting Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping's worldview is a much more aggressive one than what we've seen from previous Chinese leadership. So I think that's your starting point. But we obviously also have the added facts that we've learned in the last 24 hours that ASIO raided the houses of four Chinese journalists in the early hours of the morning on June 20. Six in relation to yeah into a relation to a case with a New South Wales upper upper house parliamentarian Shaket Mosselmain who's been uh, investigated uh, or the people around him I should say have been investigated about foreign interference. Now I've been speaking to people this morning with knowledge of these affairs. So they these four journalists were visited by ASIO in ASIO under their own powers. Um, ASIO has quite a lot of power. If there's a police officer there, it's usually just in case things get. A little bit willing but the point that they make is that we're not interested in journalists doing their journalism these people were involved in clandestine and deceptive behavior on behalf of a foreign power that was detrimental to australia's interests now that's taken straight out of australia's foreign interference laws so that's the way that asio sees what they're doing not interested in journalists doing their journalism if if they're ever asked how what they are doing is different from what china does they see it as extremely different. They say that under the circumstances in which these journalists were interviewed and there was property seized from their homes, they were there early in the early hours of the morning, about 6am as I understand, but they were informed of their rights. The questioning was voluntary. They were told they could refuse to be questioned. They were free to call anyone at any time and they didn't have to take part. They're free to leave at any time. Circumstances obviously might have been a little bit different, but, but overall, at the end of the day, you've still got police knocking on the doors of journalists. So, I mean, I think two issues arise here for me. One, is, does this, this new knowledge lead us into a, a kind of gross tit-for-tat that we see going on a spat between these two nations? And, and the second issue, which I'd like to put to both of you, it seems to me that both Bill Bertels and Mike Smith were surprised when this background story started to emerge. How can that possibly be? How can they never have been told as Australian reporters working in Beijing that ASIO happened to be raiding the homes of journalists in Sydney? Uh, that's not surprising at all, I don't think, Monica. They, they never tell anyone what they're doing and it only comes to light usually after the event or uh, if someone has been tipped off beforehand. But if, so, but if their safety might have been endangered, and clearly it was... Yeah, that would be a, yeah. Well, that would be something that the, the agencies would take into account. Clearly, they, they were warned a couple of days uh, before there was the knock on the door that, mm. that, that, that there was concern that had to come from intelligence somewhere because apparently the warnings were so insistent both to their editors in Australia and to them then in uh, in China that they got the message that they should leave and obviously that conversation was being recorded somewhere by China because then that or, or sorry that once they arranged their travel plans clearly the Chinese knew that they were going because the knock came on the door 
in the early hours of the morning on which they were scheduled to leave. But it doesn't surprise me at all that they, the journalists wouldn't have any idea about what was happening in Australia in terms of what an intelligence agency is doing because they never tell anyone about that. Now, obviously, do the intelligence agency chiefs then take into account this might have effects on people in China? Probably not to any great degree. They're, they're bent on doing their job at this end. So, uh, yeah, you could get to say it's, it, it's tit for tat. And the answer you get from intelligence agencies here is that there is nothing equivalent and that they don't believe that these people in the end uh, in Australia actually are journalists, that they're working for the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. Thank uh, you. I think, that, I think there's two things that are going on there. One is that uh, we knew on the day that Shaukat uh, uh, Mosselman, the MPs, uh, raid, you know, officers have been raided by ASIO with AFP backup. So that was public knowledge. We knew on the day that John Jang, who was uh, a staffer or former staffer for Mosulmane, um, had been also the subject of raids. So that was not a secret. I find it interesting and a little alarming that uh, the raids on journalists uh, somehow or other was deemed to be more secret than the raid on a, uh, on a state elected representative. Uh, who subsequently had been flung out of the Labour Party on the mere suggestion that he might have been an agent, uh, you know, subject to foreign interference. Mm. So for one thing, I think the pressure that was put on the Chinese journalists, whether they were spies or not, um, to, to keep it silent, and the fact that there was nothing released on this by um, the security apparatus, if they're willing to talk up Mosulmane circumstances, I would have thought that the journalists, uh, you know, that was that was newsworthy, and and that if Mosulman was not a secret, why was the journalist kept a secret? That disturbs me a little bit. Um, but I think the key thing here is a false equivalence that runs between China and Australia. We have to realise that China, uh, so we're told by our security agencies, is in almost daily uh, assault on our cyber systems, testing our cyber systems. Uh, that uh, according to Chen Yonglin, who was a diplomat who sought asylum back in 2005, way back then when things were opening up and everyone seemed to be getting to be great mates between China and Australia, he reckoned that there was a network of a thousand Chinese spies uh, in Australia. Uh, we can only presume that number has risen. Uh, the issue of foreign interference, has, as Chris Yuman has reported vigorously and, and led on this, um, is a significant one in universities and, and in the commercial space uh, that exists in Australia. So what there is no one suggesting that these things are being done by Australia against China. So, so what we're seeing here in terms of journalists is uh, we know nothing about uh, Chung, Fa, uh, Chung Lei and because we know nothing about charges. A vague one has come out there, vague sort of catch-all charges emerge, but we know nothing about what might possibly be the allegations that are being put against this Australian citizen who is now in detention. There's no clarity about that. As for Bertels and Mike Smith, uh, the two journalists, there's no suggestion that they were acting as agents of influence, that they were spying. They're simply reporters doing their jobs. So, so th this, is, this is where it gets complex, is that we say journalists and attach journalists to it and say, well, that's an equal thing. It's a tit for tat. But in fact, there are two, two different processes underway here. And and we need to filter out what is, uh, what is China's uh, activity within Australia, what is Australia's activity within China, and what are the relative levels of, of government interference in, in what people are doing in the normal course of, of, of their work. I'm disturbed that we didn't know, if we knew about Mosul, that we didn't know that these uh, 
registered journalists in Australia were not also subject to raids. I think we should have. Yes, yes, and that's what I was referring to earlier. And uh, and I wonder whether had we known that that action might have been taken a little sooner to uh, to, to to indeed move these two Australian correspondents out of Beijing. But Chris, can I ask you? I mean, Bob, Bob Carr this week on the ABC talked about the fact that China was acting illiberally and aggressively. But he says these are not happening. These events are not happening in isolation. They I mean, all the way back to Malcolm Turnbull's move to publicly call out and ban Huawei, um, that he made the point that, that Japan did the same move but did it privately. Is it simply that we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing this playing out and, in effect, punishing journalists because the Australian government spoke out and led the push for America and the UK to exclude a state-owned company? Do you think Bob Carr is right in any way? Oh, I've got no doubt that Bob Carr is right when he talks about that. But let's have a look at the ledger. And Bob Carr has long been a mouthpiece for Beijing, frankly, when it comes to talking about Australian foreign policy and seems to always believe that if there's any fault with uh, the relationship, it must necessarily be the Australian government's fault. So let's have a little look at the ledger. Uh, China has occupied and militarised the South China Sea in contravention of uh, international law and against what Xi Jinping told Barack Obama they were intending to do. That crosses our major trading route. They have undoubtedly been involved in foreign interference inside our own country. And if you go back to 2016, we identified $5.5 million worth of donations that were given to Australia's political parties, which came from Chinese Communist Party sources. And, uh, and since then, one of the billionaires that has, was involved in giving that money has been locked out of Australia again on the grounds of foreign interference. That country engages in the daily assaults on our intellectual property and our government services when it comes to cyber attacks. Uh, it threatens Australians of Chinese origin inside our borders and assumes that they will be working on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, it's looking for military bases in, in, the, in the South Pacific now and will undoubtedly head there at some particular point in time. And what has Australia done? Australia's past foreign interference laws to try and defend itself. It's said that Huawei can't be part of our 5G network because that's a completely different kind of network and the security risks are too high, something that China would absolutely do to defend itself. And the Prime Minister apparently got on the front foot and got out too early to say that we should find out where COVID-19 came from after our population's health had been threatened and our economy had been destroyed. So I don't really get this sense uh, that Australia has done anything much at all to cop the, uh, the, the, the blowback that it's got from China, except that China believes that Australia should be in its orbit and to be in its orbit means that we should shut up and, uh, and do what it wants. And now if we are prepared to accept that as the price of entry into the 21st century, or Bob Carr and people like that might be happy with it, but it's not a position that I'm prepared to accept, that I've been concerned about this for at least five years now, that we were underestimating what was going on in China and the effect that it's going to have on us from now on. Interesting, fascinating. Hugh, I wonder, you, you know, where do, where do you, how do you see this? Because is there, a much, is there another dimension to this, and that is the United States and the relationship between the United States and China and how much that is costing us, in a sense? When you look at it, we have Australian reporters advised to leave China. You know, then we discover in June, ASIO has allegedly or has raided Chinese journalists and withdrawn scholar visas. 
there's another story happening as well. The US ramping up marine facilities in the Northern Territory. It does kind of feel as though there is a, a, a much bigger geopolitical story happening in the background, which perhaps we have been caught up in, willingly, unwillingly. What do well, you think? Well, first of all, I'd agree completely with what Chris has said. Uh, my charting of China, I, I think that there was, you know, when I was working from 2004 to 2009 in Hong Kong, frequently going into China, we, um, we hosted CNN's first ever program, shed, scheduled programming out of Beijing. There was a moment there when uh, it, it seemed as though China was going to essentially enter the world um, you know, uh, in a, it would still do it in its own way, but enter the world as a essentially a full adult involved in a, a multilateral position in the world and would be a altogether, um, you know, beneficial partner or the potential for it to be an altogether beneficial uh, partner in the world. That is now gone. And you raise the United States. One of the things, Trump is many things. Uh, one of the things that he was determined to do was to stop uh, bringing, he signaled that he wanted the United States to stop getting into wars that we couldn't win. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and we've got examples of that where he was, you know, he, he literally at one stage uh, set off to, you know, cruise missiles into Iran. They were just about ready to go and he changed his mind on it because he didn't want another clash in the Middle East. Some things are clear. One is that he, Essentially, even though he's beefing up the, the American military, he's putting lots of money into it. Uh, it is really um, one that is more like Fortress America. And although we've got this stuff going on in, in the Northern Territory, if you look at it in total, far more important, I think, is that the United States has signaled a return to essentially uh, a kind of an isolationist argument. And it's long had in its, in its history, an argument between those globalists within the United States and the isola isolationists. And, mm -hmm. and we've essentially lived under the globalists ever since JFK, you know, the torches passed forward, we will, you know, fight any foe, etc. you know, who, who's opposed to our ideals of freedom and so on. Now, that has ended with Trump. And so what we see is something really significant for us in Australia is, we don't know what will happen in the election in November, but um, the sense of a, a, a unipolar world after the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall, that's gone. The United States is no longer the king of the world. Uh, China sees that as an opportunity. Uh, they're reaching down into the Pacific, as Chris says. They're reaching into the Indian Ocean. They're invading uh, parts of disputed territory there on the Indian border. Uh, this is a highly active expansionist China. And mm. the Chinese rhetoric goes a lot about, oh, one thing about China is that we've never sought, uh, we're not an imperial country in the sense of, you know, we only want to be China, we don't want to be anywhere else in the world. But that's not actually what we're seeing. As Chris says, they're making and militarizing islands in disputed territories, precisely what they said that they would do. They've further secured and repopulated uh, Tibet uh, with Han Chinese, you know, to, to overwhelm the, the, the Tibetan original indigenous population. They've imprisoned all these people up in Xinjiang, up in, up in Western China. Uh, and they're using their soft power through the Belt uh, and Road Initiative uh, to essentially construct infrastructure, which has all kinds of elements within it, including the use of a kind of a, a debt for sovereignty arrangement, which we're seeing impoverished countries 
um, infrastructure projects, port facilities, and so on. They'll build them and then land a big debt bill, Sri Lanka being a, a very clear example of this, on the Sri Lankan government, in their case, when they rebuilt Hambantota after it got wiped out by the tsunami in 2004. They completely rebuilt it in about two years. And then, and then they said, they gave them the bill. They said, we can't pay. It says, never mind, we'll take over the port. And that gives them strategically in the bottom of Sri Lanka a, a, a port that they can militarize to help them contain India, which is their strategic, one of their strategic competitors. So China is seeing itself as it sees itself historically as being the center of the world. And the United States, which had previously for the last century more or less seen itself as the center of the world, or at least the great influencer in the world, is, is, is shrinking in size. And that matters to us profoundly. And yet here we are, 40% of our exports go to China. Can we continue to do business with this more belligerent China and not compromise our values? Chris? Uh, I think we're in for an extremely difficult time and through the course of the rest of the 21st century. And I can only echo what Hugh said. It's given us a great sweep of history there. And he's absolutely right. From the, after the end of the Second World War, uh, the United States helped to build the infrastructure of the world, which we've all taken for granted, and then defended it. The United Nations, the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization, the IMF. If you look at the most recent defense paper that's come out of Australia, it's driven by just two fears. One is the rise of a more aggressive China, and the other is the retreat of the United States and the fear that we will be left on our own and what on earth do we do about it? So we are going to find a circumstance where China will use its economic clout to coerce us. At the moment, what we're seeing is they're picking off things that don't matter to them. The barley trade, really, they can get barley from somewhere else. When it comes to wine, they can buy wine from anywhere in the world. Comes to students, they can put a lot of pressure on us because our universities got so over-leveraged and so dependent on one source of income. Uh, tourism, of course, we've seen them use that against South Korea when they decided to put in a missile defence system there. We've seen them use their economic power around the world. At the moment, they need our iron ore and our coal because we're a cheap and reliable source of that, but they are searching to get it from elsewhere. So they're looking for places in Africa where they might be able to get mines from that. And when they can get another source, we should assume that they will use that power against us. So the problem is, I find, Australian business people and academics are ludicrously blinkered, constantly talking about what the Australian government has to do to fix this relationship. Look, if the trade ministers of China won't pick up the phone to support, speak to the trade ministers of Australia, that's not Australia's fault. That's a Chinese decision. And they are signalling that, that we will we'll only allow you to talk on our terms. So if you're a business person looking forward at the moment, you should be looking to do what the Australian government is looking to do, and that is to diversify your portfolio. And what the Australian government has been doing and doing quite well is to reach out to other countries that are like-minded, the Japanese, the Indians, and the Chinese have helped immensely on that front by having a border incursion there because the Indians weren't interested in what we call the Quad, which is the US, Japan, Australia, and China. Uh, have, we've been trying for years to get them to reboot that. They weren't that interested. Now they're terribly interested in being part of that. That is part of counterbalancing China in the region. And look, none of this is about trying to prevent China's ride or, uh, rise or trying to ring fence China. What it is, is the world recognising that China poses quite an extraordinary problem for everyone and that, uh, that the small nations in particular need to start to hedge against the future. 
and to 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 ally to ally themselves in a way which means that if it happens that we all have to push back at some stage, that we can all push back in union. And can I end this? on this point. It's been said that Australia made some sort of strategic error in getting on the front foot and being the first country in the world to call for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. Australia led the charge and actually has got a lot of credit for that. And I've spoken to a number of diplomats from different countries who said somebody had to speak it, someone had to speak up, someone had to say it and have the courage to say it. And a lot of countries were hanging back on that front. The fact that Australia led that charge has been noted by countries in this region and they're grateful for it. So can I just get it right here, um, Chris, if I, if I understand what you're saying, it seems to be fair, you, you seem to be saying quite bluntly, Australia is now in a position of deep sovereign risk in relation to China, which we're talking a massive figure, 40% of exports. How can that be replaced by other countries? That's a massive number. How can India yep. replace that? Where do they well, go? Uh, and, you know, we constantly look to places like India and, you know, I've got a soft spot for India because I lived there for a while. But, you know, one of the problems of the Indian market is the eternal problem with the Indian market is that, you know, the infrastructure in India is nothing like it is in, um, in China and the organisation of the economy is completely different. It's, it's utterly chaotic and doing business there is actually quite hard. Mm -hmm. So a lot of businesses look to India and think they're going to make a lot of money and then come away licking their wounds. I'm optimistic on that front. It is a great democracy and they are a great people and they will be, in fact, one of the most important counterbalances in the world to China. And China actually is, is quite aware of that. So what India does in future is extraordinarily important. We have deep historic ties and, and you know, some, some, some real cultural interests with India, which I think we should explore. We are underdone on Indonesia. We have a ludicrously small amount of trade with that most important of countries. And we need to start working a lot harder on that relationship, particularly people to people, because, you know, the Indus Indonesians are suspicious of Australia's intention, particularly after East Timor. We've, we've got a lot of work to do on that front. So no, we can't pull out a huge trading partner and assume that we're going to have a difference. We've got to try and get on China as best as we can, but understand this will be a transactional relationship. We have a comprehensive strategic partnership with China that's not worth the paper that's written on. It's neither comprehensive, strategic or a partnership. We've got a transactional relationship. Hopefully we can continue to transact, try and keep the peace, do not offend them unnecessarily, uh, but when we have to, stand up for ourselves. And the other point that you seem to be making is that Canberra and indeed the academic community that speak to Canberra and speak to other constituencies about this relationship are kind of blind when it comes to China. Do, do you see that changing anytime soon, Chris? Oh, I don't think that. I think Canberra is utterly awake to it. I think the groups that are blind to it are, our, are people who run our universities, who built their business model on Chinese students coming and paying full fees and business people who can see no further than the next ton of iron ore that they're going to sell and don't understand that things are changing underneath their feet. And if they can look at what's happened in the last little while and think that anyone who works in China, Australian working in China uh, as a business person is necessarily safe, uh, even if they've got a good relationship, well, they should think again. Hugh, can I bring you in here? Just let's go forward a little bit. What happens if Donald Trump wins another four years in uh, in the White House? Do you, what change do you think that will make to the dynamics? Well, one of the great uh, shames, I think, is that this election is going to put up uh, two uh, f deeply flawed uh, candidates. Uh, Trump, we know his flaws, um, and I think his 
his instincts to withdrawal and, and to sort of get involved in whatever random things that he, he gets involved in. He, he becomes a lame duck, certainly by the two-year mark, according to tradition, once you've got to the um, midterm elections, uh, then every, all the political energy in a second goes towards who's going to succeed you or who's going to be jockeying into position for the next term. So there's two years of real relevance, essentially, from, uh, from Trump if he was to get elected uh, back in again. And his instincts, I think, are, uh, are random, but he doesn't want to fight with China, uh, particularly. He certainly doesn't want to get involved in a physical fight with China. Uh, that may be, may be a good thing. But if you look at Biden, if he gets elected, I think the lame duck, uh, experience with Biden starts from day one. You know, and this is a serious problem for them because I think anyone in the Democratic side uh, and in the Republican side looks at, at Biden and, and figures that he's a one-term, one-termer. And almost from day one, there will be people jockeying to try to be in a position uh, for the next election. And that includes the Democratic side. And so people there on the Democrat side, as well as the Republican side, may see advantages in embarrassing or taking down Biden or marking out their own position, ready for the next fight, positioning themselves for the next fight. I think that's a, a, it's been an underreported aspect of a Biden presidency, should it come about, is that it'll be weakened by his potential frailty. We, we haven't seen him under pressure. He's been hidden away, essentially, with pandemic giving him an excuse to do that. But I think if he if he gets in there, uh, you know, I, I can't see him being a particularly assertive figure and particularly the kind of figure who might um, reposition the United States into a more expansive um, role, a more assertive role across the Pacific, because that would obviously involve brushing up against China. So I think my gut feeling is that the United States decline, in a sense, and either leader is going to continue uh, in the in the immediate term, over the next four years or so, uh, beyond that, it's it's impossible to make any kinds of predictions. But you don't believe that Biden would would halt the retreat, the isolationist attitude. No, look, I think what happens is that events tend to determine things, and uh, you know, if you if you go back to say George Bush the second, George W. Bush, before nine eleven, suddenly reframed the world into a fight against Islamic. Uh, terrorism or Islamist terrorism, uh, you might recall there was a flashpoint with China um, where he was uh, verbally uh, putting up China as being essentially the potential rising uh, strategic threat to the United States. Uh, the State Department was putting out, it had done before him, uh, human rights reports, which are very, very strict on, you know, and calling China to account, uh, uh, an American uh, spy plane effectively that had to make a forced landing on Hainan Island. And there was a, a, a brief sort of face-off as to what would happen to the, um, the air crew, the pilots on board. And there was a lot of muscling up and saber rattling about that incident. And people kind of thought, well, this is what the Bush presidency is gonna be about. It's gonna be about this clash with China. Then 9-11 happened. China immediately came on board with the United States because China's got its own issues as it perceived it with the potential Muslim insurgency within its own borders in Western China. And they said, whatever you need to do, we're there to help you. And China, in a moment, ceased to become the issue for the Bush presidency and didn't really emerge as a threat to the Bush, uh, you know, into that period. So events change. If, if there was a flashpoint with China, whoever is the next president is going to have to uh, deal with that. Uh, but if there's a new president like Biden coming in, 
I think that there would almost certainly be some way in which the Chinese would seek to test them in some way, not militarily, uh, but just to just to sound them out. And so I would, my, my gut feeling is that is that that would be probably what happened. Uh, Chris, if, what, what do you think? What, yeah, what no, I'm, I'm, I'm as worried as you about what will happen at the US election because uh, given Australia actually has been quite forward-leaning when it comes to China and there has been, you know, a mercurial president there, although he's made China one of his big things, uh, the worst thing that could happen to Australia is that we see a continued retreat of the United States and that's quite likely after the next election. I mean, I think the worst possible outcome of the US election is there's a contested result and we actually see a civil war in the United States. And I really mean it. Those militias that support Trump going onto the streets of America and actually using the guns that they're toting about would be the worst possible nightmare. And I think it's not beyond the realms of possibility now. And I think, you know, thinking selfishly about Australia, which we have to do in, in in terms of the United States that we see either under Trump or under a future American president is we have to assume we're going to have to go it alone. We find ourselves at a unique point in history. For the first time in our history, our major trading partner isn't a liberal democracy and it is a strategic competitor with our key ally at a time when our key ally is declining. Now, you know, um, Malcolm Turnbull always liked to talk about the Thucydides trap, of course, you know, and this is that it was the famous saying that it was the rise of Athens and the fear that instilled in Sparta, which made war inevitable. And the fear is that when a rising power meets a fading power, they must necessarily go to war. Now, I don't think that that is the case. Australia should work to make sure that that never becomes the case. We should not antagonise China in any way. We should, though, seek to try and defend our own interests. And the reason... I get excised about this is because I don't believe that people understand that what China is actually demanding of Australia would be in a position where it actually undermines the things that we believe are our values, the right to speak out about things when we believe that they are wrong. For example, the imprisonment of a million people in China simply because they're Muslims, you know, how is it that that is not one of the major stories being told every single day? Well, yes, it has to be said it is told, but not many people listen to that one. So mm. we, we're going to have to wind this up soon. I'd like just to bring it back to the issue of Australian reporting presence in China. And this is a question to both of you. Have we seen the end of having Australian reporters telling us about China from China? Hugh. Well, I think we have for the time being, bear in mind, as you've said, Roseanne Fifield, there are Australian citizens in there. Steve McDonald was an excellent uh, correspondent for the ABC, now with the BBC. Uh, there are others in there who are Australians and presumably keeping their heads down at the moment because there is certainly that element of hostage diplomacy is what you don't want to get tied up with. We saw the reaction against Canadians uh, in China after Canada uh, essentially affected the arrest of the senior Huawei uh, official in China um, so that she could be extradited to the United States. And uh, among other things, we saw um, Canadian business people uh, being charged. We've seen, we saw a, a Canadian drug smuggler who had got a long prison term being brought back into court and resentenced to the death sentence in China after that. So um, I think when any manager, there'd be plenty of journos, on, you know, who are gutsy enough to go and have a go, but any manager failure, making a judgment about where they're going to deploy their correspondence, 
must take into account the responsibility for the health and well-being of that correspondent. And at the moment, you'd have to say they'd be pretty nervous. Mm. And Chris, finally to you, do, do you think it'll be a while before we see an Australian journalist reporting for an Australian media outlet in China? Yeah, I think I absolutely agree with you. Again, it is going to be based on two things. One is what media organisation in Australia now would take the chance with any of its people. So you'd have to think long and hard about that. And secondly, it is that there is at the base of this, the thing that we've been talking about all morning, it is that China has changed. And the only thing China really wants of us is our silence and our compliance and I don't think that Western journalists actually fit into that picture. And it's a really beguiling thing to want from someone. Silence and compliance. We hear it all the time from academics here and from business people here. If you'd only just be quiet, then everything would be okay. Well, you know, silence means consent. And are we prepared to give that? For some, it's not too high a price. And as far as I'm concerned, it's actually the highest price of all. Well, on that note, I thank you both for being with us today. Hugh Remington and Chris Orman, you've, uh, it's been a most enlightening discussion, a fascinating discussion, and I thank you both very much. Thank, thank you. you. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for all that support. And make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell, and my name is Monica Attard. Thank you for listening. Thank you.